Well, let's just pick right up where we left off last week. We finished Romans 14 and we'll go into Romans 15. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible, on your phone if you've got the Bible app on there. And I'll read it for you. Paul continues, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have trouble with that one, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And that's where we're going to stop today. And so as we pick up where Romans 14 left off, we see that we love each other because Christ first loved us. That was one of our points last week, and Paul continues it there in the first verse. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So who is strong? He says, We who are strong. So who is strong? Who is strong? Someone's strong back there. Yes, we're strong. You'd say, I'm strong. You're strong. Why are we strong? We're strong because Christ loves us. You're strong because Christ loves you. What else, where else would your strength come from? That's where our strength comes from. We see that in 1 John 4.19. We love, why? Because he first loved us. So we who are strong... Do what? Have an obligation. 
An obligation. Well, what is an obligation? Well, let's be clear again, and we keep going over this, and it's important to keep going over this. Obligation does not mean we're obliged in the sense of we owe God because we're trying to earn something from God. We're trying to earn this salvation. We're trying to earn this free gift. No, it is a free gift. We can't earn it. We are obliged in response to God's maximum love for us. So, we're strong. Now we have this obligation to do what? Bear with the failings. See that? Bear with the failings. Well, what does it mean to have a failing? We all think about failing. We think about school. Oh, man. Got an F. (laughs) Well, what is a failing? What does it mean someone who has a failing? Well, one option would be just when we have a struggle to do the right thing. And that might be others. That might be ourselves. Man, I've got to struggle to do the right thing. And another option, though would be somebody whose views or actions are maybe at odds with mine. Oh, they have a failing in the sense that I'm here and they're there. And so what does Christ's love point us to do? Points us to bear with those failings. Bear with those failings, which means stick it out, which means carry on. Um, Example for me that comes to mind is parenting. Right? Now, we don't have some expectation that our children are born perfect or live perfect or make perfect choices and we're trying to help build character in them and make choices. But man, I think parents, you would probably agree there's times where you just go, oh man, these kids have some failings. Right? Just as our parents have done that with us. But you know, we can't just put a sign on them and put them out on the curb and say, someone else deal with these failings. We're obligated to bear with those failings, right? We can't just get rid of it. And that's what I think the picture is here, is that we've got to bear with those failings as a parent does with a child. Paul goes on and he says, please his neighbor. Let each of us please his neighbor. Well, the significant thing about that is, what is our natural tendency to do? to please ourselves, isn't it, right? That's not my natural tendency. I'm not going to go, yeah, I'm going to go please that guy. So he's saying, hey, lay down your own desires to please yourself and please somebody else. And not just somebody else, somebody who has a failing, somebody who's weak, somebody who's at odds with you. And then furthermore, do what? Build him up. Build him up. So if I think about building somebody up, it's going to take efforts. And so if I'm going to make efforts to the improve, to improve the life of somebody else, what's the fruit of that? If I'm going to invest in somebody else to build them up, what is the fruit of that? Well, one set of fruit is that that person is probably going to grow, draw closer to God. Another set of fruit is that that person might then turn around and take that love and affect others. And so that is what it means. To build him up is to take Christ's love and pass it on to others so they might also pass it on. So that's what Paul is getting at. So what is the goal? The goal is to live in such harmony with one another that together you may with one voice glorify God. When we love others as Christ has loved us, unity is created. That's really the essence of it. And I think everybody understands and recognizes there's a beauty to unity. And good is accomplished in unity. Right? We think about sports. Obviously, this is a sports town. And you think about championship teams. One thing that characterizes championship teams is not just that they're very talented, but they have a unity. 
They're working together in harmony towards a goal. And that's our goal is to glorify God. That's where God is wanting us to go. Now, that's what God wants for us. But, does the world perceive Christians as united? Does the world look at us and say, yeah, Christians, they're, they're really together. They're really united. I don't think so. I think they see us like this, right? This picture, we're just a bunch of judgmental people. We're just very disunited. We have all these factions, all these groups, people at odds with each other, people pointing fingers, people who are rude. That's what they, they see. And I would say, well, why does the world have this perception of Christians? Why, why do they have this perception? Are they just jealous and bitter and upset about Christianity? I don't think so. I think they have this perception because there's some reality to it. There's some truth to it because I think Christians have not done well historically at obeying the commands that are there for us in Romans 15. I don't think we've done a very good job of that historically. I don't think we've done well at bearing with failings and pleasing our neighbors and building them up. But we need to. And I think part of the problem is that Christians have long acted as if, if I, if I just have faith, then I'll have unity with anybody else who has faith. I just sort of think that unity is this automatic thing, and yet we see in Romans 15 that yeah, unity is something we have to choose, and we have to, oh, we have to bear with the failings of those who are weak. It doesn't just come automatically. And I think this is part of why we see church divisions. I, I think of an old friend of mine who's uh, been a pastor for a long time, and he, he said something about churches, about our movement of churches particularly, that I think has been something that's very encouraging to me. He said this, he said, Most churches in America, they assume unity, but strive for autonomy. So they set up as a church, they go, oh, well, we're just united with everybody, and they strive to be different. He says, in our churches, our goal is that we assume that we're autonomous, but we're striving for unity. And I think that's the heart of what's going on here in Romans 14, and that has really helped me. And so as a result of that, we would say Christians must prioritize the pursuit of unity with each other. We have to make a priority. We have to put some effort into that. And I think it's something that we see in the New Testament. It's not just sort of this, oh, this universal unity. It really means at the local level. It means at the local level. Why? Well, if you look at every epistle, every letter in the New Testament is addressed to who? One specific local church. And the calls for unity are to that local church. We'll see that even some next week when we get into Romans 16, that there's this call for individuals in the church to be united with each other. And so I think our call right here in this circle is to be united with this church first. Why? Because this is where you are, and this is where God has called you. While we want to be united, and we'll see this a little bit later, we want to be united with all Christians in other places, our first place of making our effort is right here in this circle. So knowing this, I think we have to ask the question, all right, unity, 
Unity, unity, unity. What does that mean? What is the structure of unity? What is the structure we're given for unity? And so we're going to go through that today. And I have this diagram. This is a very high-tech diagram that shows you kind of these, these spheres or these levels of unity that we want to strive for. <clears throat> so the first one we're going to talk about today is faith. Number one, our first circle is the faith. What is that thing that's, hey, this is the essence of what we believe. This is what we have to have. These are the essentials of faith. If we don't have these things, you're probably not calling yourself a believer. The second level then would be our values and practices. Okay, from that we come to some convictions on certain things and we have certain ways that we're going to practice those things. And we're going to talk about those today as well. And we would see that, you know, there's other circles, other churches that might do things a little bit differently. And that doesn't mean they don't share the same faith, but they have different values and different practices. And then, as we sort of talked about last week, as we were talking about food and some of those things, there's basically everything else. I probably could have filled the whole screen there, right? Everything else sort of falls out in that third layer where you go, okay, these are things that just... It's not really even a sphere of things. It's just all those extra things. And we'll talk about those some too. And so today, we're going to go over how each of these things play out at the Firehouse Church. Now, if you are new, maybe this is your first time, or maybe you've been coming around, you've been here a few times, hey, what a great day for you to show up because we're going to get right to the heart of what the Firehouse Church believes and the values that we hold to. So if you have any question about what we believe, we're going to talk about it today. So that's really cool. On the other hand, I also think that there's a number of us who are sitting here who've been walking in this faith and walking in our church for a long time. And that's why I love this verse from Romans 15 where Paul says, On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. Now I'm not Paul. I'm not going to claim to be an apostle. But you have recognized me to be your pastor. And so today, this is, if you've been here for a while and you understand all of this, this is just a reminder of this is who we are. And this is what we believe. And these are our values and practices. And these are the things we take a stand on. So that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to walk through each of these things. And I hope that you get to learn a little bit something more. And yet, this is a very broad, in some sense, topic. And so in a lot of ways, I'm going to just be hitting highlights. And so my pledge to you is that if you come away from this with any questions or you'd like to talk about it more, I would love to sit down. I'm sure Brad would too. Love to sit down and chat with you, answer your questions, send me an email, whatever, and we can talk about it more. But let's go ahead and start on this. We'll start there with the faith, that inner circle, the faith. These are essential doctrines. You're going to find these things here to be the key tenets of Christianity pretty much anywhere in the world. And I think almost assuredly, although other people would word things maybe a little bit differently, you're going to depart. If you depart from these things, you're going to be departing from historical biblical Christianity and going into something else. Now, I'm going to put these on the screen and we'll walk through them. I'll read them. If you go, wow, that went by too fast. I wonder what these are. Well, guess what? They're on our website, denverfirehouse.com. You're welcome to see them. Why do we put it up there? Well, because it lets people know exactly what the core of our faith is. And I find this to be very useful. Um, sometimes in my line of work here as a pastor, as an architect, I come across other pastors, other believers who go to other churches and they tell me what they, where they go. And I go, oh, that's interesting. Well, rather than sit there and ask them, could you go through your core values... I just go to their web search website, and there it is, and all the information is there, and I can go, well, well, I agree with those things, because we share those things. So you're welcome to do that with us as well. So let's go through these. The first one, 
Our first key thing of the faith is the scripture. And I'm just going to read this. Because why would I? I couldn't say it better than that's already written. So scripture. The sole basis of our beliefs is the Bible. The 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. The Bible is unique in that every portion and every word was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was without error in the original manuscripts and has been passed down to us with great accuracy. It is the supreme and final authority in faith and life in this age. So that's what we believe about the scripture. Now let's talk about God and man and the fall. And we would say there is but one God everywhere present, infinite in power and knowledge, perfect in justice, goodness, and love, creator of the universe. Eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each whom possess all the attributes of deity and the characteristics of personality. God created the first man and woman in his own image and appointed them to rule and care for the earth. They lived in perfect relationship with God and each other. God instituted marriage, which is the lifelong union of one man and one woman and the foundation for bearing and raising children in the family. The first man and woman doubted God's goodness and rebelled against him. In judgment, God brought death into the world and creation fell from its state of perfection. Since then, all human beings are born with a corrupted nature and without spiritual life and are under the wrath of God because of their sin. The third thing is there, Jesus and the resurrection. God the Father, by his own choice, for his own glory and out of love for sinful men and women, that's you and me, sent his son Jesus, the Christ, into the world to reconcile sinners to himself. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. He was God in the flesh, both true God and true man. Jesus lived a sinless life and voluntarily suffered and died as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sins, thus satisfying God's justice and declaring righteous all those who trust in him alone. Three days after his crucifixion, God raised Jesus from the dead in the same body, though glorified, in which he lived and died. He bodily ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, where he, the only mediator between God and man, makes intercession for his own. So that's what we believe about Jesus and the resurrection. It comes to salvation and assurance. Men and women are freed from the penalty of their sins, not as a result in whole or in part of their good works, goodness or religious observances, but by the undeserved favor of God alone, which was given through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you come to this church, we say something about this every week, don't we? God forgives and accepts all who put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. All who are born again of the Spirit can, through the sure promises of God, be fully assured that God will complete the work He has begun in them. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is God's deposit, guaranteeing their eternal inheritance. Good works are not the basis for acceptance by God. But as believers grow in doing good, they grow in the assurance that they are truly children of God and that they will be with the Lord when they die. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has come into the world to reveal and glorify Christ, to convict men and women of their sins, and to impart a new life to all who place their faith in Christ. He permanently indwells believers from the moment of spiritual birth, guides them into truth, and empowers them to live a life pleasing to God. It's the core of what we believe about the Holy Spirit. We talk about Jesus 
And he's coming back. That's what the scripture tells us. The Lord Jesus Christ will physically return to the earth to reign in glory. He will raise the dead and judge the world in righteousness. The wicked will be sent to eternal punishment. The righteous will receive immortal bodies and be welcomed into eternal fellowship with God in a world where all things will be made new. And man, I'm looking forward to that day. Amen. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded that those who believe in him are to be baptized in water as a declaration of faith and a symbol of new birth in Christ. He also instructed his followers to remember him by partaking in the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of his death, resurrection, and future coming. And just for all of you who are aware, we love to do baptisms and we do them periodically. We don't do them on a schedule just as someone wants to make that statement of faith in Christ. We'd love to do some here before the end of the year. If you're interested in that, you could talk to me. And then it talks about the Lord's Supper. We just take that as communion and we plan on doing that a couple times here before the end of the year. Once the Sunday after Thanksgiving and once um, the Sunday after Christmas. So um, look forward to those things coming up as well. Final point. Point eight here, the church. Here's what we believe about the church. All true believers, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, people of all ages and races make up the church worldwide as God's family. They should gather together in local churches for worship, prayer, fellowship, and teaching in order to be conformed to the image of Christ and to become equipped to carry out the great commission that Christ gave his followers in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. All right, so that was a lot of reading. But I think there's a lot of good points there. And we'd find that's really the core. That's our faith. That's what we believe. And that's what you're going to find Christians everywhere are going to believe essentially that. Again, they may not word it exactly the same way. But these are the principles of the Christian faith. And in our church, we're not going to compromise those things. They're centered around the gospel and they're aligned with historical biblical Christianity. You're going to see people holding those faith, that faith all throughout time back to Christ. And they will continue to as well. So that's the core. We can have unity in those things, right? Well, now there's the next level. Well, the next level is those values and practices, right? Can it go to the next level? And we have those essential doctrines. That was our faith. And now there can come some places where there starts to be a little bit of branching out on some of these issues. And last week we talked some about wrestling with principles, wrestling with their scripture and our faith and coming to conclusions. And sometimes that happens at the church level. And we start to think about things of the how-to, right? So we talked about baptism and we talked about the Lord's Supper. There can be a wrestling with, well, how do we do that? How do we do that? And in this church, we come to some values and some practices of how we do that. And there's other churches where they don't compromise the faith and come to different ways of how to do that and how to practice that. I have this picture here on the wall. And it says, it, what is it? It's a, it's a rowing team. I, I know, I think they call this crew, right? The, I don't think crew is very popular in Colorado. I don't hear about it much. But I know on the East Coast, um, it's very popular. I had a friend uh, in graduate school who, um, in his undergraduate years, he went to Yale and was on the crew team at Yale, which I think is a big deal in those kind of schools in that part of the country. So I don't know a whole lot about rowing, team rowing. But what I do know is those people have to be rowing together, right? 
And they don't have to just be kind of together. They've got to be really together. They've got to be really, really in sync. And their oars moving in exactly the same way and exactly the same time and exactly the same motion. And a lot of times when there's that many, there's somebody who sits in the front and they've got some kind of funny name. And I don't know what it is, but that person kind of marks the time and tells them, do this and do this and now and now. I don't know how it works, but that's what they do. Well, what happens if one of those people in there is like, you know, I've got a different technique for rowing. I've got a different stroke pattern. I've got a different rhythm. And they start going with that. How's that going to go for that team? Not very well, is it? Right? And that's kind of where it comes to, where you'd say, well, you know, it's not like they're necessarily rowing backwards. They're probably still rowing in the right direction, but they're not united. They're not linked in. Instead of giving up what they think is the best way of rowing and doing the thing that the team is doing, they're kind of trying to do their own thing. And that's where these values and practices come in. I think that's a picture of what we're talking about, where we go, okay, you could come to maybe some different conclusions and some different convictions on some of these things, but at some point, a church, an organization has to come up with, these are our values, these are our practices, this is how we're going to row together. And so that's what these things are. And so we're going to walk through these. Now, as a church, we're part of a movement of churches called Great Commission Churches. And we share values with those churches, that that organization. And that organization has put together a, a booklet about our core values at this level. And I love it. It's great. I would love to give anyone a copy who would like it. You just let me know and I will get you a copy. But there's a statement in the introduction to this book, and I love it. It's right here. It says this. The purpose of this book, the purpose of these core values is to explain, not exclude. To build bridges, not walls. To inspire, not to restrict. The goal is to give an honest explanation of the commonly held values and practices. So in that spirit, I'm going to just talk about through some of these things. I think there's eight of them here. You're probably like, oh my gosh, eight more points. Well, I'll just read through them. And they're much longer than this. I'm just going to give you a couple of highlights that I think give you the flavor of these things. And again, if you'd like to get this book, I would get it to you. If you've got questions about it, I'd love to sit down with you and talk about it. But let's just jump into it. The first element of this book is the grace of God. We would see this. God's grace through Jesus Christ is our bedrock and power supply for our salvation, our life in Christ, and our ministry, both individually and as churches. Grace will lead to works and result in fruit in people's lives. Those who have been born again by the Spirit are eternally secure and will not lose their salvation. We believe in a balance between God's grace and man's responsibility. We believe the Bible teaches both the sovereign grace of God and the solemn responsibility of man to trust, obey, and serve God. And so you can see, if you look at this, where you could, other churches might deviate or have a different flavor of those things. I know a number of weeks ago, as we were talking in sort of the middle of Romans, we were talking about free will and predestination and where we come to a place of really trying to balance those and there's some churches that will maybe sort of go more to one side or maybe go to the other side and they don't lose the key core values of faith but they might just have a little different value a different practice of how that goes and we go well that's okay but here this is where we are Right? The second point is commitment to God and his word. Our supreme desire is to glorify God. I hope you pick up on that week from week. Our, our love for God and devotion to him must be our deepest passion and greatest motivation. 
The Bible is our final authority for doctrine and practice and our instruction manual for life. It's God's revealed communication for matters of our faith, for our personal lives, for raising our families, for our behavior in the workplace, and for all ministry. We desire to develop biblical understanding in community. That's listening to different opinions, experiences, perspectives, and working them out together inevitably gives us a clearer picture of the true meaning of Scripture. And so you could see some other churches, some other places might say, well, maybe it's not really quite the instruction manual for life. And they might take a different perspective. And we go, that's fine. But that's what we see. We look at these scriptures. And I love how most of these points have definite passages of scripture that it points to. It says, this is where we come up with this value. So that's our value on that one. Our third value, all nations reach with the gospel. That's our desire, is that all nations would be reached with the gospel. And hopefully you've seen that in our church. We would say, out of our love for God and people, our mission is individuals and as a church is to fulfill the great commission there Matthew 28 19 and 20 to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded based on the example of Acts 1 8 we generally seek to follow a principle of progressive geographical expansion reaching people first in our city then in our region then in our nation and then in the world and we've done that. You've seen, if you've been around our church for a while, you see obviously we're, we're very focused, all of us here in this city, and yet we've done things regionally. We're supporting other works in our region. We've taken mission trips in the region, in the nation, and even in the world. And for those of you who don't know, we have a, a couple who's there helping to lead an underground fellowship in China right now. And we're supporting that. And we get to the church, the fourth point. God has commissioned and established the local church as his primary means of loving him and others by winning people to Christ, building them to maturity, raising up leaders, and starting new churches. Acts 2.42 provides a model for the practice of our church. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We organize around small groups for building friendships, Bible study, discipleship, mentoring, accountability, outreach, providing pastoral care, and developing leaders. And Brad alluded to those during our announcements. And you can see here, when you look at this point, how other churches might take a different view on some of these things. And we go, all right, that's all right. But these are our values. And these are our practices. And this is who we are. And this is how we're rowing as a church. Church leadership. We believe that Jesus Christ is the head of the local church. So that means who's the head of this church? Jesus Christ. And that the local church has final human authority over its affairs under Christ. We hold to a New Testament model of Christ-centered, submissive plurality of pastors rather than a single pastor or a congregation-led leadership structure. That's why you've got Brad and I, and not just me, or not just Brad. Elders and pastors, which we see as a synonymous term, according to Acts 20, are to be appointed based upon the character qualities described in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Our general practice is to develop and appoint leaders from within the local church. And you can see how that's probably very different than a lot of other churches as well. We believe that these character qualities and and doctrinal understanding needed to become an elder, pastor, overseer, again, the synonymous terms. We see those qualities are best developed within the local church. 
Therefore, we view additional training, such as Bible schools and seminaries, not as a qualification, but rather as a possible supplement to the equipping of a pastor within the local church. And so I'll get asked that question a lot. Oh, pastor, where did you get your seminary degree from? And I say, I did not. <laughs> I have a master's degree, but that wasn't a qualification for this. And it was not, it was in architecture. It wasn't in, the, in divinity. And so that's what we see. And we would hold that and we could see very clear. This is something, I grew up in a church that didn't hold this value and didn't hold this practice. And this was one of those big areas when I came into this church where I was like, well, shouldn't we be rowing a different way? And I came to realize, no, I probably need to row this way. And here I am. Our sixth point is the, really the doctrine of love and unity, oneness. We strongly revere this doctrine within all of Christendom. God desires unity between believers as a high priority. And that's what led us to this today in Romans 15. And we strive to maintain a unity with every believer, both inside and outside our church association. We promote the practice of defending and believing the best of one another and not receiving an accusation against another person or an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. We seek to honor, love, pray for, and cooperate with God-fearing and Bible-believing churches and leaders locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. Our goal is not to compete with other churches, but to cooperate as allies in furthering the kingdom of God. And it's been my pleasure to get to know other pastors in this city who are not part of our church movement and who would differ from us on some of these values and practices and say, wow, we can cooperate together as allies for furthering the kingdom of God here in Denver. Our seventh point there is raising godly families. We believe strong families are foundational for the physical, social, emotional, spiritual development of each individual. For healthy relational patterns within the church and for stability in society, strong families produce strong churches and strong communities. And we've seen that at work here. Our church, any strength we have, I think, has come in so many ways from our families we believe that parents are primarily responsible for their child's spiritual, academic, and personal development. Church ministries, including youth ministries, are intended to strengthen the parent-child relationship and to support parents in fulfilling their God-given responsibilities. And again, you can see how other churches probably may not have this same practice. I know I grew up in a church where they didn't really believe that. And that's okay. But this is where we are. This is our value. And our practice is to encourage families to be on a mission together, actively involved in evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. That's why we've taken mission trips. I know we went to Phoenix a year ago, and I know Rob and his family came with us, and the Irwins came, and our family, and the Sextons, a number of families went on a mission trip. It's really cool, and we'll keep doing that. Our practice is to affirm those God has led to be single in a desire to have an undistracted devotion to the Lord. So we do love families, and we see God's good there, but we see good in singleness as God has led people into that. Don't ever misunderstand that. Singles are not second-class citizens in this church. Finally, and I think this is the last one, right? It's like, oh, are we through these points yet? Here we go. Every member is a minister. We recognize, while we recognize that God calls some to be workers in the gospel as a full-time vocation, I guess that's what I get to do, we affirm the priesthood of all believers rather than a clergy-laity system. All 
Christians are priests, according to 1 Peter 2, empowered through the Holy Spirit to worship God and be workers in the church and the world. The elders, in this case Brad and I, we have the responsibility to train and equip you guys, the members, in ministry, but not to actually perform the entire ministry of the church. And frankly, you don't want that because we probably would be really boring. It's much more exciting to have you guys doing it. God desires each member to utilize his or her unique spiritual gifts in ministry. Again, like we say, this is not Netflix. It's for here for you to participate. And you've got spiritual gifts that God's given you. And we want to give you opportunity to exercise those. Finally, our church ministry will be both centralized in a rented building like this one. Or decentralized ministry performed by all of us, the church members, in homes and in the marketplace. Alright, so there we go. And so the conclusion from that is, hey, these are the values and practices of this church. This church. This is who we are. These are our values. Now, you might look at some of these and you might say, come from a different place, you know, sort of as I did and I didn't grow up in this church and come to this and say, well, I grew up with maybe different values and different practices and that's different and maybe it's a little bit uh, different. Maybe you have a slightly different conviction. But if God's called you to be here, then his call for you is what from Romans 15? To be united. To be united and to row with us. And so to do that, you might have to take your preferences, or your values, or your practices from your background and lay them down. Just like the guy on the rowing team who says, well, I, I rowed a different... Is that rowed? Stroked? I don't know what it was. A different way when I was on that other team, and now we're doing it here. Well, I'm going to set aside what I used to do and do what's done here because I see these are still biblical things and different convictions and it's more important for me to be rowing together. It's more important for me to be rowing together. And so to do that, we have to, we have to be open-handed. We can't be closed-handed, right? We can do that sometimes with our values and our convictions. We can just hold them very tightly and say, no, I'm not going to let that go. And maybe you can't. You know, there's a number of people who've come through our doors over the years who've been very close-handed on some of these things and said, I can't accept this. And they haven't joined us. I mean, that's, that's okay. And then there's others who've been part of our church and maybe have never thought about some of these things and they sort of have gone off on their own and typically they've gone off on their own and not really talked with any of the rest of us about how to come to these convictions and they've come to different convictions and then they become closed-handed on these convictions. And they wouldn't reconcile with us. And they depart. And they're not united. And they go and do something else. And we say, hey, we wish them well. You're welcome to do that. But I would say this. If God's call for us is to be united and to love each other, then by all means, let's do that. And so, if you look at some of these values and practices, and maybe you get the book for me and I'll give it to you, and you read it and you go, wow, I kind of struggle with this. I don't understand this. Let's sit down and have a conversation. I'd love to sit down and, and I'm not going to tell you what to do or tell you what to believe, but I can tell you why I hold these values, why I've come to hold these values and what I understand. And I know Brad would do the same or a number of other gospel group leaders would be glad to sit down with you and, and talk about these things. So you can help develop some convictions and so we can all be rowing together in the same direction. All right, now real quick, we'll just go back to everything else, right? So we had our faith, 
And we have our values and practices, and then there's everything else. And we talked about this last week, these non-essentials. And so I won't go over these again, but for those of you who weren't here, sir, were some of the things that, and there's a whole list, right? It's huge. Non-essential convictions. You can have a conviction about what style of music to sing, how to dress, how the government should tax or not tax, how you should educate your children, how to observe the Sabbath, how to celebrate or not celebrate holidays, what to eat. We talked about that at length last week, didn't we? And so on and so on. And the call from Romans is for us to seek to love each other as we come to different conclusions on these matters. And to go, well, you know what? Someone else has a different conclusion on what to eat than I do. That's okay. I'm still going to love them. And frankly, most of these things are rarely, if ever, going to overlap the operation of this church, right? I'm never going to stand up here and say, you should or should not celebrate Halloween. I'm not going to say that because I can't make that declaration. That's for each of us to come to those convictions on what's really a non-essential thing and it doesn't affect our operations. And so instead, where we're going to land as a church is we're going to try to land here. What Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, whyever you're here today, we welcome you. Wherever you're at with any of these things, you are welcome because Christ has welcomed us and Christ is welcoming you for the glory of God. Now you might ask, okay, so what's the point? We get this sort of hierarchy of convictions. Why do we develop this? Well, at the end of 15, or in this section of 15, Paul says why. And he quotes Isaiah 52. He says, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And so the goal is this, that others who have never heard about Christ would hear about him. And we're going to accomplish that when we're united and working together. Because then people will see Christ's love. Christ loved us first. When we love each other, people will see it. They will be told of him. They will understand. So if you wonder why you should love others who don't share your conviction on non-essential items. I know we maybe didn't quite get to that. Why should I love them? I have a different conviction than that person. Why should I love them? Because the lost will see it and be drawn to Christ because of your love. You say, well, why should I unite with a local church? Can't I just kind of do my own thing? Yeah, you are free to do your own thing. But when you unite with a local church, we're rowing together. And when we're rowing together, what do the lost see? They don't see that judgmental person. They don't see that judgmental Christian. They go, wow, that group of Christians is different than this perception I had. They're rowing together. What do they have? And ultimately, they'll have the opportunity to hear about Christ. That's why we do what we do. So now you've got an idea of what motivates us as a church and what holds us together. And again, I'd say I'd love to sit down and chat with any of you about this. We don't often do a message or a series on our core values. I know that they pop up into our messages and our conversations and our gospel groups, but this was an overview. And again, maybe this is new for some of you. Again, I'd love to sit down and chat with you. That being said, I'm going to close in prayer and we'll move on for the day. So thank you, Lord. God, thank you for your word and for the truth. And God, thank you that, man, God, I, I, I think back to... You sent Jesus to to earth. He lived a sinless life. He died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose again and he ascended into heaven. And he could have set up any sort of organizational structure he wanted. But he set up the church. 
the local church. And it's reinforced in the New Testament. God, and we just want to be faithful to what you have called us as believers to walk into. So God, wherever we're at today, wherever we feel, whatever we think about these convictions and these values, God, I think we can all agree that your goal for us would be unity. That we would be rowing together as a church and holding these values or if we need to shift our values or our perspectives or lay things down or be open-handed, Lord, give us the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to do that. And God, not, not so we can build some great organization where people will point at Brad and I and say, wow, what neat guys, and they're really famous and cool. God, we're not interested in that. God, we're interested in the lost being saved and disciples being made and kids being raised to know Jesus. That's why we want to do it. Lord, please help us in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.